I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. There's been a lot of debate lately about the state of the Supreme Court in relation to the fact that it's woefully imbalanced in favor of conservatives. An imbalance that's put democracy at risk. Things like reproductive rights, abortion access, voting rights, and access to health care, just to name a few, they're all at risk of being further weakened, undermined, or even banned in the case of Roe v. Wade under the current makeup of the Supreme Court. So what do we do about it? While today's guest, Megan Hatcher Mays, an attorney and also the director of democracy policy at indivisible.org, joins me to discuss what the options are. Do we expand the Supreme Court? And if we do, will conservatives just turn around and expand it again once they regain some power? And what are some other options that are on the table to create a more robust and a more balanced Supreme Court for the long term? So please enjoy this conversation with Megan Hatcher Mays. Megan Hatcher Mays, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. I think we're all well aware of the state of the Supreme Court right now, right? (laughs) Right, right. It's dangerously imbalanced, right, in favor of conservatives. You know, these extremists, they've proven that they are willing to ignore precedent. Mm -hmm. You know, they're a danger to abortion access, uh, voting Mm -hmm. rights, (laughs) immigration, like breathing, (laughs) anything, right? They're they're (laughs) endangering everything, right? And the, the way to fix that seems to be to expand the Supreme Court, which is why I wanted to have you on. Yes. I want to get into the weeds of that process because I'm not really sure people really understand what the current process, just the formal process of how we expand the Supreme Court. So can you explain that? Yes, it's very short. You, you don't need a constitutional amendment to do it. So that's the first piece of good news. Uh, the, the number of justices can be changed through simple legislation. And by simple, I don't mean easy. It just means you don't need to pass a constitutional amendment, which is obviously a lot more arduous uh, than passing a a bill in Congress. And actually, there is a bill pending right now. Um, It was introduced by Representative Mondaire Jones of New York uh, on the House side and by Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts on the Senate side. And so that bill would add four seats. So it would increase the number of justices on the bench from nine to 13. And if that passed and was signed into law, then, you know, Joe Biden could add four new Supreme Court justices to the bench. There's no um, constitutional amendment required. So that's one benefit of uh, pursuing that reform as opposed opposed to some of the other ones that are uh, on the table. Right, but it's deceptively simple given, (laughs) it is, right? Like given the makeup of Congress right now. Yeah. So it's just a bill, right? Like, and I think that bill has been in place since spring, I think like March or April or something like that. You know, and if it were simple, it would have been passed. But, but, you know, we've got to work with the House and the Senate and that's where things stall, right? Right. Um, Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's legislatively easy, but politically very hard. So um, Supreme Court expansion is one of those things that people hear it and they immediately say, even, you know, people on the left say, oh, that's out of bounds. You can't do that. Uh, you know, and they, and a lot of people think, oh, but if we add seats to the Supreme Court, then Republicans will just add seats when they get power again, which is, you know, the exact same thing that they say, naysayers about the filibuster say that if we get rid of the filibuster, then Republicans will get rid of it and do their dirty deeds if they ever regain power um, in the future. So to that, I say, yeah, you know, there's still a lot of work to do to explain to people exactly what court expansion is, why it's really not that radical. If you look at the kind of the history of how we got to where we are today with those six, three conservative majority. And it's been done in the past, too. So the number of justices on the court has fluctuated over the history of this country. But most recently, it was reduced to eight 
when uh, Mitch McConnell held open the late Scalia's seat for a year so that um, ultimately Donald Trump could fill that seat with Neil Gorsuch. So uh, it can be done. It has been done. Most recently, it was done in from 2016 to 2017, um, which is not to say, you know, we'll be able to fix this problem overnight. Obviously, it's going to take a lot of work pressuring members of Congress about the need to add seats to the Supreme Court, but it also means that folks on the left need to pay a little bit more attention to this as well, so that we are at paying at least as much attention to the Supreme Court as the right has done over the last 50 years. So all that to say, you know, it's an uphill battle. It's going to be hard, just like everything that progressives care about <laughs> never starts out popular or easy, yeah. but it's really, it's really necessary. If we want to keep the democracy that we've got, then we need to address who are the actors who are making our democracy work, not, not work very well. And unfortunately, right now, that is also the Supreme Court. You know, every chance they get to gut the Voting Rights Act, they take it. Most recently in June, they gutted it again. So these folks are not just conservatives. They're conservatives who are kind of twisting what the Supreme Court is supposed to do in service of conservative political outcomes. So making it harder for people to vote, making it harder for a very specific type of person to vote. So black people, people of color, people who generally vote for Democrats. The Supreme Court is a part of that. It's not just Mitch McConnell. Um, the conservatives on the Supreme Court are playing a role in hindering participation in democracy as well. I want to preface my next question by saying that I am for the expansion of the Supreme Court, right? Wonderful. Um, but I'm also for more so for a workable Supreme Court, right? Mm -hmm. And I think people who say like, well, you know, if we expand the Supreme Court, Republicans will just do the same thing. Mm -hmm. Like you said before, the Supreme Court has been expanded many times. I think we started out with six justices, you know, back in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. And the first time it was expanded was, I think, 1801, you know, and over time or, you know, over the decades, it's been expanded and retracted and expanded. And exactly what people say will happen has happened. Mm -hmm. One president will get in and Congress will lean one way or the other. They'll expand it and the other person, the next person comes in or the next Congress comes in and they reduce it. And it's happened over and over again. And to my knowledge, you know, I'm not a legal scholar, but I can't see that not happening mm -hmm. if we were to expand the courts again without being creative. Yeah, I think I, I understand that people are, are concerned that, you know, hey, but if we do this and Republicans will retaliate against us in the future. Totally true. And we have a lot of evidence <laughs> that shows that they will. But we also have evidence that shows that Mitch McConnell will retaliate against Democrats, whether they do something or not. So, you know, this whole business of um, refusing to give Merrick Garland a hearing or even refusing to meet with him. Um, ahead of uh, ahead of a hearing or ahead of a confirmation hearing, what was that in retaliation to? There's nothing that any Democrat did that made Mitch McConnell act that way. He's a bad guy and he's going to do bad stuff. So our job is to do good stuff while we have the chance to do good stuff. And if Mitch McConnell at some point in the future wants to do something bad, that's on him, you know. But that's not on us. We can't really plan as progressives. We can't plan, you know, our lives around what Mitch McConnell might do in the future because it's definitely going to be something bad. So we might as well do something good while we have the opportunity now. And right now, that means fixing the court so that um, all the stuff that we care about, so voting rights and uh, abortion access. And I know you were joking about, you know, they oppose us breathing, but literally like clean air. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, all that stuff, um, immigration, all that stuff ends up at the Supreme Court. So we need a fighting chance. And the way to get that is by adding seats now. So, you know, if, if the Republicans add four seats in the future, honestly, my take is, it's still better than what we've got. It, it, you know, people sort of hyperbolically say, oh, well, we'll end up with a 100 justice Supreme Court. Fine. 
that's still better than nine. <laughs> nine yeah. unelected people who all graduated from Ivy Leagues. You know, it's right. it would still diversify <laughs> the institution quite a bit. Yeah, I guess my only point is, is that, you know, after 200 years, the only solution to this can't just be to keep adding and removing people. I'm just saying that, is there not a better solution to fix the Supreme Court? Like, I think we, we're equating fixing the Supreme Court with expanding the Supreme Court. And I'm saying, like, maybe that's not the answer. Maybe there's a way to fix it that doesn't involve expansion, right? So that there's always a balanced, fair Supreme Court, Yeah, right? Where it doesn't matter who's in power, Democrats or Republicans. Yes. That, that I think good work can't be undone. That's right. I think there are, so there are other reforms that you could do. I think some of those are more long-term focus or like they're future looking. So right now, my point of view is that the most important thing that we can do right now to immediately resolve the issue of the Supreme Court is add seats. So that solves our immediate problem. Um, and our immediate problem is, you know, Brett Kavanaugh, Amy Coney Barrett, Neil Gorsuch. So if you add four seats, you could attack that problem right now, today. But then there are other reforms that you could that you could adopt that are forward looking. So something like term limits, say, so we would add seats, but eventually over time, every president would basically be guaranteed at least two picks because judges would be cycling off after 18 years instead of being on the bench for life. And then, you know, we wouldn't be in the situation with Stephen Breyer refusing to retire uh, because they would be set for 18 years and then they would cycle off. So that's a very good long-term solution to kind of balancing the Supreme Court over time. The only issue with that, um, if you don't do that in conjunction with any other reform, is that it wouldn't apply to any of the Supreme Court justices currently on the bench. Um, and it would only apply, so it would only apply to future justices. And so in the immediate term, that would put justices appointed by Joe Biden. So assuming Joe Biden gets an opportunity to nominate and confirm someone to the Supreme Court, it would immediately put them at a sort of tenure disadvantage to, say, Brett Kavanaugh, Samuel Alito, Clarence Thomas, who would not be required to leave the bench after 18 years. So it wouldn't apply retroactively. It would only apply proactively. So a really good thing to fix this problem is to do those things together. So you could say, I want to add four seats to the Supreme Court, and all future justices need to cycle off um, after 18 years. That way you're sort of refreshing the bench on staggered 18-year terms. It's a little bit more fair. It, it lowers the temperature of confirmation hearings because it's not like this sort of once-in-a-lifetime event that this president, or like random or unexpected event that a president might be able to replace somebody on the bench. That way they can plan for it. They can, uh, everyone kind of knows that it's coming. It's not as intense or cutthroat as some of the confirmation hearings we've seen in the past. Yeah. You know, I want to go to Breyer because I'm curious, I haven't really been paying very close attention to this debate. So what's the argument against him retiring? Because I'm like, you know, go for it, you know, retire. <laughs> but I know that there's another, you know, there's another argument on the other side that I haven't paid attention to. So why are people against him retiring? <laughs> I think I the know. only person, the only person against Stephen Breyer retiring is Stephen Breyer. I don't know that. I think that there are some people who feel, you know, it's it's uh, maybe it's tacky or something to call on a Supreme Court justice to retire when they're not ready. Uh, you know, the the norms lovers, uh, the people who love decorum in in Washington, maybe those people feel like. There shouldn't be a big push to try to convince him to retire. And of course, Stephen Breyer doesn't want to retire. And he, I am not joking when I say this, he said he loves being the senior most liberal on the court um, now that RBG has uh, since passed away. And that means he gets, he gets to talk third in the special uh, justice meetings that they have every week. And so he's loving that. I'm not joking. That is, that is what he said. He, he loves to be able to be the first uh, member of the liberal 
wing to speak in these uh, conferences that they have, which means he's third overall to talk. To me, that is ridiculous. Um, well, you know, you gotta, you, know, <laughs> you gotta give a guy something, you know? Who wouldn't want to stay in their job exactly. forever just so they could speak third in a meeting? <laughs> Um, so that's, but so that's, I, I think norms and decorum are the main thing uh, that Stephen Breyer feels like he shouldn't be pressured off the court. He he also feels that if it's if it becomes very obvious that justices are retiring for political reasons, it will do damage to the reputation um, of the court overall. Again, for it's happened. The damage is done. The The reputation of the court has already been damaged. It's very obvious that uh, conservatives retire at a given time so that they can be, and, and liberal justices do it too, um, so that they can be replaced by a Democratic or Republican president. That's how it goes. And so the damage, as far as, insofar as that damages the Supreme Court's reputation, it's done. It's already happened. Um, I think what people are really worried about is that Democrats have the slimmest majority imaginable in the Senate. We already know that Mitch McConnell will do just about anything to um, prevent Democrats from filling a vacant Supreme Court seat. And so if anything changes in the makeup of the Senate, and on top of that, there is an unexpected vacancy on the Supreme Court, which happened just a year ago, uh, a year ago, almost exactly, um, that we will not be able to fill that seat and we will end up with a 7-2 conservative majority on the court. Um, So... Look, uh, to each their own, I think you should stay in the workforce as long as you like. But if you uh, hold a Senate-confirmed position that is highly dependent on the (laughs) political temperature of Washington, D.C., you should be a little bit more strategic about your retirement. No, you're right. I don't disagree with anything you've said. I mean, so, yeah. I mean, so the thing about it is, is that, you know, you're right. We've seen it, you know, within our lifetimes and over the past several years, conservative justices retiring for political reasons. No one says it out loud openly, but we know that it's happening. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that just goes to my point of fixing it so that it is beyond this kind of yo-yo effect with the Supreme Court. Oh, I had a really good point. I just completely lost it. Oh, anyway, you talk, it'll come back to me. So. Look, there's a lot of concerns about the court. And I think that, um, Dem- I think like just an ongoing issue for Democrats is that it's like, oh, well, if we respond, then people will think that we're being radical. It's, it's, again, it's not that people, that everybody woke up one day and thought, you know what might be fun and for no reason at all would be to add seats to the Supreme Court. Like this really is in response to, you know, 50 years of sort of dirty deeds on the part of Republicans. So really, they really um, coalesced around Roe v. Wade in a really scary way. They invented the Federalist Society in the wake of that of that decision. They were like, oh, okay, we really need to get in lockstep behind um, dr- dramatically remaking the courts because the courts are granting civil rights to women and Black people and people of color, and we can't have that. You know, the white conservatives at the time felt really threatened by that, and so they spent the last 50 years getting us to this point. That's why we are now here where we are. That's why Mitch McConnell was really had no compunction about holding that seat open is because he'd been working for this outcome for for decades. And so I think conservatives really understand that whoever the president is, is really, it's important, but it's not as important as having a judiciary who's willing to sort of overturn the popular will. And that's where we are right now. That's, that's where we've landed. So I understand the concern about, uh, totally understand the concern about whiplash, totally, totally valid. Um, this kind of concern about a yo-yo effect on the Supreme Court, but really the alternative is it gets even more Trumpy or even more McConnell-y uh, unless we do something about it now. 
Yeah, I mean, so I guess the first thing I'll say is that you're right. They've been working on this for decades. I don't think that there's been a liberal majority on the Supreme Court since like the, the early 70s or like the late 60s, right? Um, it's always kind of leaned conservative. And secondly, about Breyer, I just think if that's his reasoning, he could retire, they could get someone new, and they can just let him come in and speak sometimes. Like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> he can just come in and like, you know, give a give a speech, you know, talk about, you know, what he did over the weekend. I don't know. He, he, could, give a, he of, could give tours. He could give tours. Whatever he wants. Well, you know, even when, <laughs> even after, even after the justices retire, it's not as though they kind of like pack it up and that's the end. I mean, even uh, John Paul Stevens kind of held sort of a sort of a senior status type of role, um, where he still, you know, he still heard cases and he still was a judge. Uh, he just wasn't on the Supreme Court anymore. And lots of justices do that, actually. So, Stephen Breyer, there are many things you could be doing with your life besides <laughs> this. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I have to say that I think what we are in agreement on, I just want to clarify for people who are listening that it sounds like the best approach, and we don't talk about this enough when we debate this, you know, publicly, like, you know, on television and in the media, the best approach seems to be a multi-tiered approach, you know, mm -hmm. at the very least a two-tiered approach. Fix the immediate problem, which it, I mean, honestly, this probably won't be fixed in the way that we'd like it to be fixed. But, you know, let's just say it is. Fix the immediate problem with expanding the court and then a long-term solution, which I think that people should debate more publicly. The longer-term solution, acknowledging the fact that, yes, you know, Republicans will, you know, undo the work in the Supreme Court that Democrats have done and we'll just do the same thing and we won't be anywhere within the next century. We'll be back in the same place within the next century. So we really need to discuss this more publicly about the fact that this is kind of a Band-Aid, expanding the court. At least I think it's a Band-Aid. Yeah, well, it's like a like a tourniquet, I think. <laughs> no, you're right. It's better than a Band-Aid. It, it is much, much better. Considering, like, what's on the line, you know, abortion rights and voting rights and all of these yeah. things that would secure our democracy, you're right. It is a tourniquet, right? Right. Yeah. And it's and it's something that is needed at this moment. But if we want to undo this, this kind of back and forth long term, we need to be more creative. Yeah, I think I think no, there's no silver bullet to fixing the courts, uh, the the immediate tourniquet, bandaid, uh, whatever, whatever you like, uh, would be adding those seats just to kind of stop the more egregious attacks um, from the conservative wing of the court. Um, that's like a sort of an immediate solution. But then, yeah, of course, you have to look over the course of time, like, how can we prevent us from getting into this situation again in the future? There's lots of reform, potential reforms on the table. One, of course, is um, term limits. Uh, another would be, you know, Supreme Court justices actually do not have to follow the same ethics code as every other federal judge <laughs> for some reason. Yeah. Um, so that would be another really good one. It's like, who is paying for Supreme Court justices to give speeches? Like, you know, what, what sorts of connections are there between the Supreme Court justices and the people who argue cases in front of them? Because a lot of, um, a lot of the more conservative litigators actually have personal relationships with uh, the Supreme Court justices that are not public. So we don't have like very good recusal rules or conflicts uh, of interest rules for the justices. Those are all things that can really kind of restore faith in the institution um, as a whole. And there's lots of things I think that uh, uh, along those lines that, that we could do to at least to at the very least to make the court more transparent. And there's nothing the Supreme Court wants less than for people to pay attention to what they're doing. <laughs> That's kind yeah. of how this is. This has worked over the course of the years. That John Roberts is very savvy when it comes to public relations, uh, and this all works really great when no one's kind of really paying attention to what he's doing. But if there are cameras in the courtroom, if there are same day audio at least, then you know people actually would be able to know kind of what's what's going on at the court, how the court kind of interacts with our day to day lives. 
we can understand better the relationships between the justices and the litigants. Um, all of that makes a huge difference towards improving improving the public's perception of the court, but actually the day-to-day -day function of the court. And that starts to get at some of the issues that you're talking about where, you know, it's not, we're not going back and forth tit for tat um, every four years. We're really protecting the institution as it was meant to be protected from political influences. No, that's no longer the case, but, um, but it should be. Yeah. So, I mean, I've read a lot of other possible solutions, like, you know, some kind of judicial panel, like a rotating panel, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of, I don't know how that would work. But I guess my question to you is, is there any solution that's been put on the table that would not be blocked by our current congressional makeup? I mean, you know what I'm talking <laughs> about. You know, what I, yeah, I don't have to say their names. Yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> we don't know who they are. Yeah. No, there's not. They don't even want better rules to help people vote. I mean, there's no reform in general that Republicans would support because all of this, all of this chaos and despair is really working out in their favor. You know, they win elections and they don't even have to try because they've made it so difficult for, for people to participate uh, in our democracy. They certainly don't want to fix the courts because the courts are really their salvation, especially when you see the popular vote totals in the presidential elections are really you know, not looking good for Republicans, but there's all these like sort of systemic ways that they can hold on to power. One of those is the Electoral College, obviously not to digress, but the other one is the court itself. So even if they don't have a majority in Congress, they can still count on the conservatives at the Supreme Court to kind of rule in their favor. So there, there's absolutely no incentive on the part of the right to fix this problem. In fact, they would love to make it worse, I'm sure. But the thing that we can do on the left is make this more popular. You know, that's everything that progressives care about uh, starts out really unpopular. <laughs> so take the, yeah. take the filibuster, for example. You know, that used to be really, really unpopular, right? To even talk about getting rid of it or reforming it. Now, if you are a Democratic candidate for the Senate, the first thing a reporter is going to ask you is, do you support getting rid of the filibuster? It's almost like a, you know, it's the first question you have to answer before you can throw your hat in the ring. That can be true for the courts, too, um, that we can spend a lot of time, this Congress, building up as much support as possible for the Judiciary Act, so getting a bunch more co-sponsors in the Senate, getting a bunch more co-sponsors in the House, so that we can make this issue finally really like a centerpiece of democratic politics, because the court plays such a central role in our constitutional and civil rights, but also participation in democracy itself. So this is really, really critical. Again, very, very steep uphill climb, almost Everest levels of steep, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't give it a shot. Uh, if, we, if we didn't do something because it wasn't popular, then I don't think we would have achieved anything uh, of any of our progressive priorities over the last 20 years. Yeah, I mean, it depends on how you define popularity, because, <laughs> I, you know, seriously, I mean, are we talking about popularity amongst constituents who really don't really think about these things as deeply as, you know, we do, like, analyze these things? They just want to see progress, mm -hmm. right? Are we talking about it amongst, you know, like, the Beltway people, right? I mean, that's that's one question. But then just to go back to my previous question, when I said that we know who these people are, Republicans are a given, right? They don't want yeah. anything to go forward, right? I'm actually talking about some Democrats, right? Like, oh, sure. How do we get past this impasse <laughs> with, cer <laughs> with certain Democrats, really? Because, the, you know, the filibuster is kind of in the same position. And I'm just at this place where I'm assuming that anything, anything big, like a big paradigm shift is going to be blocked by certain Democrats in the Senate mm -hmm. specifically. Yeah, I, I mean, like Manchin and Cinema are, are very strong Senate institutionalists for some reason. They they love, we were talking earlier about norms 
and uh, decorum in Washington. And some people seem to be more concerned about maintaining those norms than actually like making life better for people. So again, very hard to imagine a world in which mansion and cinema would go far enough left to support court reforms, but uh, that's okay. I mean, I think we still have a long ways to go. There's only one senator who sponsors the Judiciary Act in the Senate. That's Ed Markey. He introduced it. So there's a lot of work to do before we even get to Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, And that's okay. That's kind of part of the work. That's all right. And and we've got, a, we've got an election coming up next year too. And so despite the history showing us that the party in power tends to lose seats in Congress, there's still really good candidates out there who do support court reform, who do support Supreme Court expansion. And so and we got a bunch of really good ones in the House. By the way, the fact that there's a bill pending at all shows you how much... <laughs> how much this, the popularity on this issue has shifted just in the last two years. And this is the first time that a court expansion bill had has been introduced in Congress, I mean, since, you know, the 19th century or whatever. So that's that's a really good sign. It's a lot of forward momentum on this issue, which it, it's going to take a ton of work. And we might not ever get mansion and cinema, but we might get a new class of Democratic senators who do care about this and understand how important it is. That's going to take forever. That's going to take a really <laughs> long time. I'm sorry. I, I'm being a pessimist about, about this, and I'm glad you brought this up because I made an assumption, and I think we all kind of do this. You know, we have these blinders on. I made an assumption that just because this is something that I would want, that there was a lot of support for it. And I and I was going to ask you next, what was the state of this bill? And it sounds like it's just still trying to pick up support. So in the Senate, yeah, 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 in the Senate for sure. In the House, it has uh, 33 co-sponsors. Last time I checked, and the really good news about the House bill is that Jerry Nadler, who's the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, which is the committee that has jurisdiction over this bill, uh, was a lead sponsor of the bill. So that shows a little bit of uh, establishment or institutional support for the bill, at least on the House side. And that's good. It's very good. The first time a bill ever gets introduced is not going to be the first time it passes Congress. (laughs) That almost never happens. (laughs) When that is okay, that is fine. Um, But, you know, over the course of the next year, I think that we will see a lot more support for this bill because the Supreme Court can't help itself. You know, they're going to keep issuing bad decisions. They're going to keep pissing people off. And people are going to start to look around for some solutions to this problem. And right now, the Supreme Court is a big problem. And this bill represents one of those solutions. So, yes, it's going to take some time. It's going to be difficult. I'm not going to hide the ball on that. Who knows what's going to happen in Congress next year? I don't know. But there's a lot of opportunities for us to earn support for this bill in Congress, starting with Ed Markey and working our way out from there. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we need more Senate seats. But, you know, yeah. I mean, the thing is, is that I think we probably spend more time online than than most people who are probably listening. <laughs> But I can tell you that Joe Manchin has been called every name under the sun. He's not budging anytime soon. His positions on a lot of these things are, you know, it's just not very popular. I'm not really sure what would move him or cinema. You know, the answer, I think, is probably just to get more Senate seats. Because as it stands right now, this is not tenable, right? Um, yeah. Amy Comey Barrett is not, uh, do I want to say this, not qualified. <laughs> Well, she's not. Yeah, she's not. She's not qualified. You know, I don't think we need to revisit Kavanaugh and how he got his seat. And so this is not this is not tenable long term. And I want a solution, but I don't think that there's an easy solution. You know, that said, I hear people all the time. You know, this debate's been happening on on, on television, on the news shows, you know, and online. You know, Democrats, they, you know, they don't want this enough, you know, or the Biden administration, they aren't fighting hard enough for this. And I think that's an oversimplification of what we're facing right now. Right. You have to have political will, but you also have to have power Mm -hmm. and that power has to go through processes. And those pieces are just not in place right now to fix the Supreme Court. I wish they were. Or maybe I'm wrong. 
I don't know. No, you're right. I mean, I think that Democrats and Republicans wield power in totally different ways. Like if the, you know, it's almost cliche to say this, but if the situation was reversed, you know, Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump would have already added the seats. It would have been the first thing that they did uh, at the start of Congress. You know, if this exact same situation, except the rules were reversed, it, it would have been done. Um, because Mitch McConnell changes the rules all the time when he wants to get stuff that he wants, you know, or he, he knows he can't get a massive tax giveaway to Republicans through regular order. So he does it through reconciliation. He only needs 50 votes to go that way. He got rid of the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees because he knew he wasn't going to get 60 votes for some of these extreme picks that uh, Donald Trump had selected. Um, You know, so he's not particularly wedded to norms and rules. Democrats, on the other hand, for better or for worse, I think our side is like, well, but government should work. And the way that it works is by following the rules. And so we wield power very differently. We want to be able to come to some sort of compromise. And we end up in situations like this where, you know, we're nine months into the year. We still haven't passed a transformative democracy package yet. We're kind of tinkering around the edges of this reconciliation recovery business. Um, And it's really frustrating because Republicans don't have this problem because they don't care about governing. And our side does care, which means it's a lot harder to get stuff done. Yeah. Uh, Which is, of course, not to mention, you know, special interests play both sides too. So that's part of it. And I don't want to minimize that. Again, I, you know, I don't think, I can't envision a world in which Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema somehow overnight become supporters of Supreme Court expansion. That's probably not going to happen. But that's, that's not where we start. We start elsewhere. We start with the Senate progressives and we work our way out from there. That's the way we always do it, you know, and when we get to them, we get to them. You know, one of the things when I have these conversations, I talk about the state legislatures and I talk about the Senate and Congress. Of course, the White House. And it seems to me there's this pattern that Republicans, this is just a comment, not necessarily a question, but Republicans are really good at getting more power while they're simultaneously becoming less popular. Like it's mm-hmm. just really, I mean, they've been doing it for years. It's just a comment. I, and I'm not really sure how they do it, but they do it and they do it really well. But, you know, I do want to ask you about this commission because President Biden, I think it was around the same time as this bill was introduced, like back in April or sometime in the spring, mentioned a committee, right, to look into whether we should expand the Supreme Court. Is that right? Not a committee, a commission. Yes. Um, What do you know about that? Yes. So he established this commission and invited a bunch of, it's mostly legal scholars, kind of unfortunately, actually, who are studying different reforms for the Supreme Court. The good news about it, this is actually farther than I thought Joe Biden would go. He at least did, you know, say to this commission, I want you to look at court expansion as one of those possible reforms. So that was actually kind of a pleasant surprise. But overall, this commission has been given six months, and I think we're about four months into it now, to study these different reforms, and ultimately they will issue uh, a report. Now, that's the kind of thing that a president does when they don't actually want to talk about the issue. (laughs) And they're hoping that the report will come out and no one will notice and they'll never get asked a question about it ever again. And I think we've seen this every time somebody asks Jen Psaki, hey, where's Joe Biden on Supreme Court expansion? She'll say, oh, we're waiting to get the report from the commission. It's just a really easy dodge. In my view, this commission is, one, not particularly representative of the country as a whole. It would have been great if they had uh, appointed commissioners to this commission outside of kind of, of academia. Yeah. So it would have been great to have people who were actually affected by court decisions be a part of this commission, but that did not happen. So that's really unfortunate. The other thing is six months is a really long time to study an issue that has a very obvious (laughs) solution. (laughs) The solution is to add seats. 
So I really don't think you need six months to do it. And to the extent that it feels a little bit like a dodge from the Biden administration to say, oh, we're studying the issue, we don't have a position on it yet, is really unfortunate. They're ultimately going to put out a report at the end of it. Uh, Folks can make public comments at whitehouse.gov about what they think is best as far as fixing the court. But it shouldn't be that difficult to come up with a position on Supreme Court expansion. The problem is obvious. There's a 6-3 conservative majority who are helping Republicans score political wins in court. And the solution to that problem is to add seats. I could have done the commission in, you know, a day. We don't need need six months. Yeah, I I thought that, and maybe I'm wrong. uh, I I thought that they were not only looking at expansion, but looking at other solutions, like the ones we talked about, like thinking they are, they are. Okay. Yes, they're looking at a range of reforms. But the good news is, is that one of those reforms is expansion. So that was not a given that the mandate of this commission would also include expansion, but it's very good that it does. Um, And perhaps this is the first step towards more mainstream support for the issue. But they're looking at a number of different reforms. So they're also looking at term limits, ethics, uh, you know, cameras in the courtroom, like more transparency, basically. All of that stuff is super, super important. But it does not address our immediate problem, which is the makeup of the court. Yeah. Well, I could talk about this all day. Anyway, <laughs> I, I could. <laughs> well, Megan Hatcher Mays, thank you again for an enlightening conversation. I love talking to you. And thank you so much for all of the work that you do. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. Great talking to you. 